I'm Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borana of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello and welcome to On Air podcast. Thank you for all your, you know, lovely comments on last week's episode. And obviously, if you've missed last week's episode or any of our previous episodes, you can uh, listen to them wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and the first section we thought we would cover is the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's tours in the past, because we are recording this on the Sunday. So, so far, all they have done on their tour is arrive. And that would be a really boring segment. So rather than do that, we thought it would make far more sense to look back over some of our previous favourite Cambridge tours. Um, but we thought we'd start off by just giving you a rundown of our top five and then we're going to talk about that top five in a little bit more detail. My top five, very hastily prepared. My number five is India and Bhutan. My number four is Pakistan. My number three is Sweden and Norway. My number two, Singapore, Malaysia, Solomon Islands and Tuvalu. The number one, I, I can't do a drum roll is uh, the April 2014 tour of New Zealand and Australia. Ooh! So my number five tour was Germany and Poland. My number four tour, the South Seas. My number three place was Sweden and Norway. My number two was Pakistan. And my all-time favourite tour is India and Bhutan. If we go in kind of chronological order, I think it's interesting that neither of us picked the first tour they did. No, that was number six on my list. I, I sort of oomed and aahed with it for a while. Yeah, so the first tour that we had kind of chronologically is the September 2012 tour to Singapore, Malaysia, Solomon Islands and Tuvalu. In, in terms of why I chose that tour, I felt like it was a tour where we still got a lot of firsts. So like it was the first time that Kate released her photography. Um, it was the first time she did a public speech outside of the UK. And I think it was also the first time we see we really, really see what I refer to as tour Kate, which is when she kind of, she goes to a country that's got a really different culture, really different climate, and she kind of wears clothes that are inspired by the local area, or she wears a national dress in that area. Um, and she often, if it's very humid, she'll have like her frizzy hair. That was my first note, just as Kate's hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think it was like, it was it was the birth of tour Kate. The South Seas tour was also when they visited like a mosque for the first time. And obviously, like the papers did all like, oh, look, Kate and Diana comparisons. But I also just remember there's been this really big deal that her toenails were not painted. Like that was in newspapers everywhere. And it, I was like, why is this a big deal? And I remember there being a lot of fixation on her feet in the press and in the public for no <laughs> apparent reason. There was one moment where she she met with a little boy. He's was, was not a, real, a little boy, really. He was 15, uh, Zakwan Anwar, uh, and he was a, in a hospice with acute leukemia. And Kate sat with him. And whenever somebody says something to me in defense of royals as a concept, I am generally quite cynical. And But occasionally, very, very rarely, something will happen where it's like, there is nothing I can say. And that was one of those moments. Because afterwards, his mother said that spending time with Kate it was as if the leukemia had gone and like Kate's a lovely person but if she was just an ordinary person I don't think that going into a hospital and talking to this boy would have had that much of an impact on him it is that kind of magical sparkle that comes with a public figure like this and so it was one of those few moments where I was like you know what maybe we do want a royal family <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also think the tour 
it's really weird because the two sort of like controversies from the time of my head are so completely different that they stand out because one was um when Kate and Will were you know getting dressed to go to an evening reception and there was a lovely pink dress laid out on the bed so rather than going for the carefully planned and well thought out dress she'd chosen she was like oh this is a lovely gift from the people I'm going to wear this and it was brilliant and it turned out the uh dress had come from it was from the Cook Islands yes and <laughs> everyone's like how dare she and then Kensington Palace was like oh she just saw this dress and she really liked it and she thought it was a gift it was something like the hotel worker left the dress in in her room it was a nice gesture it wasn't meant to trip anybody up but Kate saw it and thought oh this is lovely this is obviously a local dress I'll wear this and it was a nice gesture on her part so it was just one of those situations where it what nobody was being malicious nobody was really that upset about it like it but it became this thing and I I think nowadays we would never hear the end of it it would be made into this kind of like Kate deliberately punched a Tuvalu in person in the face by wearing this dress and or like people being like well actually Kate's just decided that Tuvalu is the Cook Islands and that's fine because she's perfect and she's allowed to do what she wants. It, it kind of shows that like they were both still sort of young and particularly Kate was still you know within the first two years of being a royal and and um the other kind of big controversy was the uh, that was when the during that tour was when the topless photos of Kate sunbathing were published and it was the next day when they were both out on engagements and William is walking around looking like he wants to kill everyone he meets and he is clearly he's very rigid and fuming and Kate looks so happy like there's not a care in the world. It was a moment that sort of, sort of crystallised things for me is like William's got much better at dealing with the press but he's never going to be 100% happy with the relationship and the fact that he has to share things he's, he would always prefer not to I think and you could see that in how angry he was whereas Kate I, I describe her as having like a backbone of steel that could, I, I, if, if Kate had chosen to stay in her house and not do anything that day, I would have understood. But the fact that she kept going and she didn't let it bother her, she seemed so happy and, you know, just breezed through the whole day. It just, it solidified to me that like, oh no, this is not, she might look like very sort of fragile English woman, but actually she's, she's the one to watch out for. She's the one who understands the game. She's the one who knows how to respond to things she's she's much smarter than I think people give her credit for and that was that I think this tour that moment really solidified that for me so chronologically my next one was actually my, my favorite tour ever that didn't even make Grace's top five so um <laughs> and that was the April 2014 tour to New Zealand and Australia and I'm going to tell you right now the uh, the only reason that this tour is number one is because of George it was the first time we got to see them with a child on tour. Also, we got to see so much. And I think also he was at his absolute cutest stage because he had these gigantic chubby cheeks and he wasn't talking yet, but he was kind of at that babbling, noisy phase. So he just was making noise everywhere he went. That's why it was in my top. That's why it's, and it's number one. It's just because it was the cutest, one of the cutest things I've ever seen in my life. And it was also... <laughs> It was also my first tour that they'd done. Like, it was the first time I had a blog while they were on tour. When I think of that tour, and I, it is the George moments I remember. I remember his play date. I remember the airport arrivals. I remember the private photos that got leaked of them hanging out in the gardens. And it's like, George is so cute. And he looks adorable when he's stealing toys from babies. And I love it. Um, but then the rest of the tour, I mean, I don't know if my bitterness just came from the fact there wasn't, like, 
a gown moment. The tour went on for so long. <laughs> it was like 20 days. And I, I felt like it just got a bit repetitive. Mm. But there were, there were good, like there's some lovely moments like when they went to Uluru. Um, I just was like, when I've gone back to look at tours, it's the one I'm like, oh, forgot about this one. No, that's fair enough. I, I, I completely like... I, d- I picked out a few other things like visiting Luru and we also had um, a boat race uh, between William and Kate, which I think that boat race is kind of one of the more iconic ones because we got some sort of like little interviews of them going to the boat um, or like just after the race kind of chatting to each other and being very cute. And so to me, that's like the archetype of what of the classic sort of William and Kate competitive thing that they do at lots of engagements. But honestly, without a shadow of a doubt, it is George that, that makes that tour the one for me. When he arrived at the airport and he met Tony Abbott and he just completely ignored him and looked disgusted the entire time <laughs> was just genius. Uh, when they, yeah, when they went to New Zealand and they, we got some adorable photographs of them together, of Kate and George together at the um, sort of play date that they went to, some of the best photos of them together. And then when they went to Taronga Zoo, most famously, and George, he met a bilby, which I don't really know what that is, some sort of rodent thing that was named after him at this zoo. And he spent the whole time dribbling, like Kate had to wipe the dribble off and wipe it on her probably very expensive dress. He got given a gift by the people at the zoo as as the traditional royal thing, and he immediately threw it on the ground. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was a big fan of that one, but I can understand it was very long. And other than George, it probably wasn't very notable. So the next one, kind of chronologically, was April 2016 when they went to India and Bhutan. And we both had this on our list. It was number five for me. And number one for me. Um, So why did you pick it as number one? I mean, there's so many reasons. I think one of the reasons, similar to you and the Australia-New Zealand tour, is that it was my first tour with my blog. So it's probably a bit of nostalgia in there. (laughs) Kate wore a few dresses from like smaller Indian designers that was the Queen's 90th birthday that year so they did um, a birthday sort of reception for her and Kate wore this like Alice Templey dress that was actually like a two-piece crop top thing and I loved it I'd marry that dress yeah I know I'm obsessed with it <laughs> she they had a visit to the national park and they, they fed baby rhinos they also had um the elephant parade which I always think I kind of overlooked, but then I realised that the reason the Elephant Parade is such a big thing is because it was Camilla's brother. It That was his thing. And I'm always such a sucker for whenever they do anything with William's step family. Um, but like the crowning moments of the tour were the Bhutan moments. So um, I liked seeing Kate and Queen Jetsune Poma together. I thought they were just amazing. I liked their sort of walk up to the Tiger's Nest Monastery in jeans. Although I've spent like the last God knows how many years thinking about the fact they were offered water and didn't take it. And I was like, look, I know you're good at sports, but you still need to drink. What, you know, I referred to Tor Kate, and I think this was Tor Kate at its peak, really. The Bhutan visit was a particular highlight of me because I loved what she did. It wasn't just, I'm going to wear a traditional outfit. She wore the Kira, which is the skirt. She wore like a half Kira, which is from a local designer in Bhutan. But then she wore a cape top that was from a European designer. I can't remember which one. And they shouldn't have gone together, but they really did. And I liked the sort of mashup of traditional Bhutanese culture with a European designer. Um, I did think there were some moments where it it was possibly on the wrong side of Torquate, which is why I didn't like it as much, which were the um, like the Jenny Packham, the blue sequin Jenny Packham with the shawl. That is one of my least favourite 
UK outfits of all time and everyone always puts it on their list of like dresses they want to see again and then when she did rewear it again I was like no I hate it even more now and it's yeah. not even being like culturally appropriative it's just being a bad dress I really don't understand the love for it either I'm not a huge fan of Jenny Packham in general because I think she just takes boring dresses and smacks some sweet sequins on them and thinks that that's enough I felt like it was an obvious attempt to look Indian but without actually giving any money to Indian people but I did I really like the tours where you get to see or be sort of witness something that you probably wouldn't see normally so like going up to that monastery was uh, in tiger's nest was a big thing for me because i i'm not very fit and active i'm probably not going to go to bhutan anytime soon so i i might not see that in my lifetime but through the press being able to be there and, and see them on the tour i was able to witness it and i was able to participate in it without sweating the moment or they even like less sort of glossy or high profile moments but like just meeting with street children it was a tour where I definitely felt like I got to see a lot of things that I wouldn't ordinarily see. I think Kate wore a, a high, well, she wore like an online high street dress for that, a glamorous dress. And like, I really like that dress. And looking back, I don't necessarily think it was the best choice because it was probably made in a sweatshop in India. But I can also see her, I, I imagine the logic of that was, oh, let's go for something cheap. So we're not cut turning up in glossy diamonds to meet these poor impoverished children but the actual engagement itself with the children was so sweet because they just kind of got down on the floor and played with them and had a chat and spoke to like the people around them and it was it didn't feel like one of those things where they like drag the street children in and you know make them do do a little performance and and it felt it felt like they were welcomed into that area rather than you know they didn't seem from the children or from the families who live there to be a kind of reluctance. You make a really interesting point about the fashion. When I think back to how I was talking about things in 2016, I mean, I've always been fairly critical and I've always been maybe seen things in a slightly different way from some other people. But I don't remember ever picking up on that in terms of like, um, she shouldn't have been wearing this because it was probably made by children there. And I honestly don't not remember it being a big talking point at the time either. And so I think it shows that, you know, in just six years, that choice would be picked up on now. And I also think it's really funny because the like defining moment of that tour was when they went to the Taj Mahal. Yeah. And I also thought that was the most boring, boring. moment <laughs> of the tour. I was like, I don't even care. Like the tour could have ended in them in Bhutan and I wouldn't have cared. Just don't go back to India for that last day. Like, I know it's not their fault. Like they can't control what the press, you know, every five minutes there's an article about how Kate wore a blue dress because it was inspired by Diana who happened to wear a blue dress once. Like, and they don't look anything alike, but there's always these articles. But I do think that, they knew going to the Taj Mahal and sitting on the bench and having their photograph taken, it was just bound to come up with, you know, to end up being compared to Diana's trip there in 1992 when she very famously sat alone on this bench. It was obvious that there was going to be comparisons drawn. And and I just, I was just, before it even happened, I just, it was just like, ugh. I was, I was so desperate for them not to sit on that bench and they did. And I was like, no, that's (laughs) going to be it now. That's the moment. And I don't want it to be. (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, there were some like really like stereotypical Cambridge tour moments like they played cricket but then I just felt like it was probably one of the first tours where they kind of deviated from that kind of um, method of like we're going to visit this place and we're going to go to famous places and take lots of pictures looking very pretty and kind of did felt like they did something a little bit more worthwhile and I felt like the tour encompassed so much because we had those moments with the animals like conservation then we had moments with children and we had sport and it felt like a really sort of well-rounded tour for seven or eight days um so the next tour we have was the number five on my list that 
uh, you didn't have a tour, which was the 2017 tour the Cambridges did with, uh, with George and Charlotte to Poland and Germany. Um, and it's the only tour on my list with the Cambridge children. But I didn't actually put it on my list because the kids were there. I have a few moments with the kids I really like. Like, I loved it when they gave Charlotte those little sort of posies of her own. Um, I loved when she had a tantrum. I just thought it was hilarious. Um, but we really only saw them arriving and leaving each country. And the rest of the tour had moments that I really, really enjoyed. Um, so uh, while they were in Poland, they went to uh, Stathof concentration camp. Um, and I remember everyone kicked up a massive deal about it because Kate wore, like, florals. And I was like, how dare you wear florals to a concentration camp? And she met with Holocaust survivors there who were, you know, not necessarily dressed in black. And that was just, a, and she's met with some of those same people again. And obviously the Holocaust has become quite a big sort of theme in her work. When she was in Poland, she also wore a dress by, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, by Gosia Bozinska. And it was such, it's such a departure from any sort of style she's worn before. And it was stunning. That dress actually, when I think about this tour, I immediately think of that dress because it was one of my favorite things she's ever worn because it was just it wasn't totally bizarre for her but it was it was like oh she stepped it up a bit and I loved it and she's never worn it since. (laughs) That was the tour where they were looking at like baby things and they were like oh we can't do any more use for this we'll have to have another baby and then like three months later we're like surprise (laughs) the the fourth day of the tour so when they were in Germany um, and they had a boat race and they made some pretzels and they visited a German cancer research centre, which is a great day. It's one of my sort of like, it's a day I could pick out as being a really fun day. And I like that one day of a tour more than most days of any tours. Yeah, I think the, what, what you said about Australia, the Australia tour that I had is what I feel about this tour, where it's like when I when somebody says, oh, this is when they did this and this and this. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are cute moments. Yeah, I like that moment. Um, but I just never remember that it happened. And I, but the, I definitely think the, the Holocaust Memorial was definitely a, a really interesting one. I think um, that's another thing that, like, I, I, I hope that at some point in my life I can go to one, but I haven't been. You, if you do, even if you do go, you don't necessarily hear directly from firsthand from survivors, from some of the few survivors who were left in the way that we did in this tour so much like this sort of India and Bhutan one that moment definitely does stand out to me because I felt like I learned a lot and I um I was able to see something that I wouldn't necessarily have seen otherwise a lot of these tours I'm noticing it's like we like them because it's it kicked off something that they did a lot since that we really enjoy and I think for this it was it was definitely the birth of that kind of relationship between Kate and the Holocaust survivors, which is definitely one of my favourite things that she does today. It doesn't like come instantly to mind like her, their other tours, but I think it just, ha- and it's also really weird because there is so much on the tours that I just found on that tour in particular, I found really boring and just didn't, like the last day of the tour, I don't even remember what happened, but it was those, it was those two, like day two and four of the tour because the whole day I really enjoyed on both of them. I think overall the tour didn't necessarily have such a good range of things. It was very heavily, obviously, Holocaust um, and World War II themed. They did a lot around there. Um, but I think those two days in particular, because obviously that that day too, they did the concentration camp. Uh, they went to the National Solidarity Centre. They did a Shakespeare performance. They did some street theatre. And then the second day they made pretzels and drank beer and also looked at cancer research. 
um, and they had a reception and it just felt like those two days felt like proper tour days. Okay, and then so next we have uh, from January and February 2018, the visit to Sweden and Norway, which was number three on my list. And on mine. Oh, excellent, we match. I mean, again, this is another one where mostly it's because of one thing and one thing only, and I'm not going to apologise for that. Um, and that is <laughs> <laughs> and that is the birth of what I call Vic8, um, which I should have trademarked because it, I created it. Vic8 is like the relationship, friendship, combo of Victoria and Kate it is obviously incredibly ingenious I don't know if anyone else could have come up with it but it would that's what it was Crown Princess Victoria in uh, the future Queen of Sweden is my favorite royal in the entire world and I now have this sort of image in my head that they text each other every night and um, are besties I mean I'm sure there was lots of important stuff that happened on the tour but it was like the Cambridges are going to meet some of these other royal people that we've also been watching for years and that's what I loved about it <laughs> Obviously, Kate and Victoria, I loved. Kate and Harold just became my favourite double act of all time. And they're my favourite sort of royal, odd royal pairing of all time. That's that's what I liked. This tour was um, very different from all of the others, I think, because all of the others, it's sort of like they're going to a different country and learning about that country. Whereas this one, it very much felt like we're going to meet each other and then we'll do some, we'll do some other things, but we're going to meet each other and hang out with each other. And... You know, we talked a few weeks ago about the tour that Kate did, or the very short tour that Kate did to Denmark. She met with Mary and, and Queen Margrethe, but it was just sort of like tacked on and it didn't feel like a coherent thing. Whereas this was the exact opposite for me because she there was multiple engagements where she met all of the Swedish royal family pretty much. In, in Norway, she met King Harold, Queen Sonia, um, the crown prince and princess, uh, Princess Ingrid Alexandra. She met everybody and she did multiple engagements. I, it's one of those ones where you just want them sort of to get together and it was it was really nice just to see. I mean, I'm sure William was there too doing stuff. But I mean, actually, there was a few really good moments between William and Victoria. And then um, obviously they met Estelle and Oscar as well. Yeah. And the sort of the trip to the Ingrid Alexandra sculpture park was literally my favourite thing because Ingrid Alexandra just kind of took the lead and you had Kate walking with Queen Sonia and you know, Ingrid Alexandra and then William and Hakon met and Marie were just kind of following along behind and it just felt like those three at the front were just having the best time of their life. What Harold, I think Harold said in his speech, like King Harold is our favourite monarch, I think I can say that for you as well. Yes, yeah, he's, definitely. He's, he's the only royal man we respect uh, but he, he gave a really lovely speech where he kind of reminded people that they're related. I mean I have heard on the grapevine um, that there was some tension between the teams because the Scandinavians are very outgoing and talk to the press and things like that Um, and whereas in uh, the UK they don't really do anything like that so not between the royals themselves but between the teams there was a little bit of tension but I did think that it kind of it was nice to see them come out of their shell a little bit. It's also one of the only times Kate's worn a Catherine Walker dress I've actually liked so that's always (laughs) I mean she was also really pregnant and I was just having the best time because they're all wandering around in like winter clothes but because she's pregnant she's dressed in like she looks huge and she's wearing like so many layers there was quite a lot of like mental health focus for this tour because it was when they were I mean they're not they're both still active to different degrees in mental health stuff but I think Kate's focus has now moved more onto general well-being in the early years and child development and less specifically on mental health 
they went to the Karolinska Institute, which is a very um, highly respected uh, medical institute in Sweden and like spoke to them about mental health initiatives. And so I liked it from that perspective as well. Um, that was kind of a big focus of that tour. Other than those couple of mental health things and then the hockey. And then it was mostly about the family that I remember. <laughs> And then so our most recent tour is the October 2019 trip to Pakistan, which was number four on my list. And number two on my list. I feel like I love this tour for a real range of reasons. The first one and the one that always comes to mind is like tour Kate, because she just went all out. I mean, after you get past like the first day, which I refuse to count as a day of the tour, the most of the rest of the time she wore like a shower kameez and she wore ones designed by... Uh, Pakistani designers or British Pakistani designers um, I absolutely loved the time William wore traditional Pakistani men's dress we finally saw tour William I know I was like, oh someone's catching up yeah <laughs> um, in one of the visits to the SOS children's uh, village Kate gave like spoke a few words at Urdu and I was like oh and they were cheered and she looked so cute and embarrassed the sort of the SOS children's village part of it was my favorite because they went and then they kind of got trapped where they were because of wind and stuff and they couldn't fly back so they just went back the next day yeah definitely I think for me there was kind of two main reasons why I liked this tour so one was that I felt it felt very significant for them as a couple I think there's a lot of sensitivities around going to to Pakistan um but I also think that it felt personally significant for them. Kate chose again to sort of release photographs um, that had been taken of uh, people in sort of some of the local communities that they met. Absolutely beautiful photographs, so much better than the ones she released uh, from the <laughs> earlier tour, which were quite frankly, sorry to her, not very good at all. And then, you know, throughout the pandemic, they made Zoom calls to some of the organizations that they met in Pakistan. And then I think the other thing is that I felt their PR really shifted. It's gone too far now. They need to dial it back. <laughs> But this tour was definitely one where like the image of them getting off the plane, even though they didn't do anything, that image of taken from behind, they've now copied that with their arrival to Belize. And they've copied it really badly. Not as good at all. Um, there was the video that I think it was released after the Pakistan tour, but they took a video of them inside the tuk-tuk on their way to the gala. And they like arrived at the gala in a tuk-tuk, which is quite you know fun and different even though I'm sure that they did it out of good intentions. I don't think everyone's PR motivated all the time. The fact that they didn't just hang around their hotel when the, the, their plane got cancelled and they went back to the children's village it was a masterstroke of PR. I mean, I, I've said this quite a few times before, but whenever I'd heard Pakistan, it had been in the context of war and getting to sort of see mod Like you said before, when you, they go to somewhere where you wouldn't... I mean, I'm very unlikely ever to go to Pakistan. I'm not really a traveller. But I... Uh, to see Pakistan and sort of to feel like I kind of experienced different parts of it and the Hindu Kush community and also you know Islamabad so like the capital city of Pakistan I mean it's probably not why tour should happen but it felt really important to me that I got to sort of be like oh I feel differently about Pakistan after the tour than I did before it and obviously you know because they'd been to India before and I thought like there was such a risk of them running into that India-Pakistan tension uh, particularly William saying something like oh I remember doing this cricket match in India and it was so much better you know and <laughs> like they didn't they managed to not mess up as, as nice as it is to for us to watch a tour there is a purpose behind these <laughs> you know they're not just going to say <laughs> they want a holiday there is and and the tours are organized by the host so it's the host's opportunity to show off their country and to 
you know, put themselves on the world stage in a certain way of like, this is how we want to be seen. And I think more than any other tour, the Pakistan one was successful in kind of challenging me and challenging what I absorb from the media. Um, and I mean, like I teach, I teach India as a topic at school. And after that tour, when we taught it the next year, I went back and I planned in lessons about the partition of India because I was like, this is something I didn't know about. I mean, I knew it had happened, but I didn't really know any detail about it. Um, like, I mean, I know India and Bhutan's my favourite tour, but the Pakistan tour is definitely the one that if I was going to tell someone like to go and watch a Cambridge tour, I'd be like, that's the one to go for. It's their, like the pinnacle tour for them, really. If you asked your favourite film, you might say like... I don't know, miscongeniality. If you were asked the best film, you'd probably say <laughs> The Godfather. You know, your what is objectively the best is not necessarily your favourite, but I do think this is probably objectively their best. Um, so obviously, by the time this episode comes out, the current Cambridge tour of the Caribbean to Belize, the Jamaica and the Bahamas will be very much nearly over. But from our point of view, we've had the, them arriving on the first day and they've not yet started engagements on the second day. So we don't really know much about what is coming apart from you know press rumors um and we thought it would be a good idea to talk about what we wanted to see yeah definitely and I think we're already seeing that this is a tour that's going to require a lot of sensitivity there's been a bit of a kerfuffle because uh they've had to cancel one of their well their first engagement really which was a meeting with the community in Indian Creek um because there's a dispute between them and an organization that William is a patron of, Flora and Fauna International, about like ownership of land. Um, and so the helicopter that they had was meant to land on a football pitch that, you know, and the, the community said, well, we weren't consulted on this, this is not okay. Uh, talk, there was talk about colonialism, uh, which I think given that, you know, we've just recently had a country leave and sort of get rid of the queen, I think is a very sensitive topic. Um, but I think that that shows that this is going to be a potentially challenging tour. In some of the newspaper stories about, you know, the protests in Indian Creek, there was the suggestion that William in particular wanted to go to see if he could help. And I'd like to, you know, even if he can't physically get there, him to have some kind of phone call with them or arrange a meeting or, I mean, A, it's a good PR move. And B, this is probably one of those rare times where he actually physically can do something. Um, whether he's literally just putting people in contact with each other like he's actually got the ability to do that rather than just stand there and be like "Mm, yes sounds very sad you know we it's we do I'm not trying to defend them because um, I think I would hope that this podcast has shown that both Grace and I are very comfortable criticizing the Cambridges Um, (laughs) but this tour was organized by the government of Belize um and they were the ones who advised that they cancel rather than going to meet I mean obviously it might not be true that William wanted to meet them in the first place that might just be PR spin but either way it was the government of Belize who advised that it was cancelled and the the government of Belize who advised that it was relocated and they activated their contingency plan as they said so whatever William and Kate want to do we don't know we don't actually know um one way or another so I do think people just need to remember that this is the host's decision. It was the host's decision for them to go to this community in the first place. It's the host's decision for them not to go. And we don't actually know their personal views on it. So when you're drawing conclusions, just bear that in mind. Yeah, I also think, you know, the initial kind of British press stories about it were like protests, Ma, uh, the Cambridge's tour. And I was like... I, I, I mean, I understand why headlines are written the way they are. I know what clickbait is. But um, it, they, the people of Indian Creek have a, have a genuine issue. 
And their issue is not actually at that precise moment. The thing they are protesting is not the Queen being their head of state. Like, they are conflating the press, the, and it is the British press, it's not the Belizean press. They're conflating two issues that both have their own sort of genuine reasons. They both have the same sort of, uh, sort of levity as each other. But for the people in Indian Creek, their issue is their land being what they believe is being taken from them. Yeah. Um, not whether or not an old lady is in charge of their country or not. But yeah, so I, I mean, it's a very sensitive one again. And I just I just really don't want to see William put, well, I say William, but Kate also is there. She could do something, you know, but I don't want to see <laughs> them put their foot in their mouth. On a far more frivolous manner, I, you know, my I want it to be one of those really well-rounded Cambridge tours because when I read the press release, and I feel like you said the same, like it didn't inspire confidence in me that it was going to be a really fun, exciting, well-rounded tour. It just kind of sounded like they were going to go and look at some coal roofs in lots of different countries. Um, but, you know, I, I want to see them talk to Indigenous people about sort of their rights. I want to see them talk to children. I want to see them, you know, go and sort of celebrate culture, do a sporting event, do music or theatre. You know, I want that range. I've literally just written down, not just the environment. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> I get it. It's a big deal. Uh, this is not a climate change denial podcast, but at the same time, it doesn't, it's not the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I've also written, I want to see Kate's frizzy hair again. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be like warm and humid and by the sea. So it's like the perfect time. And it just, it always makes me so happy to see it. So that's yeah. like the first thing I wrote down. Honestly, I'm way too obsessed with it, but I was like, yes, frizzy hair, please. <laughs> yes, I'd like to see frizzy hair. I'd like to see some local designers, um, not just yes. uh, Catherine Walker dressing the colour of the Jamaican flag. So uh, we are moving into our light bites now uh, because we didn't feel that there was enough meat for a big second topic. So we're all light bites from now on. Um, and we are talking about Princess Aiko, who is the daughter of the Emperor of Japan. Uh, she did a press conference uh, while she was on spring break from Gakushin University, where she's studying. Um, she had been due to give it about three months ago when she turned 20, which is the age of majority in Japan. But it had been postponed at that time due to her studies and COVID and things like that. Uh, and we talked about Aiko's 20th birthday celebrations in episode three of the podcast. So as soon as you finish this one, go back and listen to episode three. I kind of forgot it had to happen. Yeah. Um, and it was a proper press conference in a way that like the other sort of young of age royals haven't done. They've kind of just done like things with their parents in the background or more relaxed interviews. But obviously being Japan, they did the full like formal press conference. And she spoke about, you know, all sorts of different things. And she was very kind of, she spoke about uh, the recent earthquake they had in Japan um, and the sort of distraction that caused. She mentioned the Ukraine. She gave those kind of really like sweet moments like, oh yeah, the emperor jogs with me. It's like, yeah, your dad jogs with me. That's so cute. <laughs> Um, and then kind of the thing that the people people latched on to was she spoke about um, Mako, who is her cousin, I believe, who last year um, left the Japanese imperial family when she married a commoner and moved to the US. Um, and she said some really lovely things like she called Mako her dependable older sister, said she was always so friendly and kind. I think that was the thing that, that struck me the most, like when she talked about the earthquake and when she talked about Ukraine, these are really big topics. And I don't I don't want to undermine her because, you know, she's 20. She's an adult. She's perfectly capable of talking about difficult things. But 
you know, it's it's different to talk about it amongst your friends versus talking about it in a press conference. And these are two big topics that she had in one press conference. You know, obviously these things are very prepared in advance, but she came across as very, very professional. Um, I initially, when I first saw the picture, I thought she was wearing white. And it turns out she was wearing like a really pale kind of mint green suit thing. Um, but I thought it was a really clever look because obviously in Japan, they wear white for, you know, those big moments. She wore white when she turned 20. Um, and it's it was it wasn't white so it wasn't going that kind of to that extreme but it photographed quite white so I thought that was clearly a very intentional choice you didn't just think oh I like this outfit I'll wear it yeah because I mean you know when we look at it as a western person and think about what 20 year olds wear here even the royals um it's very different and I think there's a I see a lot of people being like why is she dressed like this this is so old-fashioned blah 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 and I find it almost offensive um when people say things like that because I mean yes it, it, it's it's not what a normal 20 year old in Japan would probably wear either um but they see they're sort of the way the the Japanese imperial household agency kind of or the staff but they have huge amounts of control compared to the royals um they they sort of see it as a uniform and so this is not what she would wear when she's sitting at home with her parents watching tv just because it's different from what you know the uniform of coat dresses that Kate wears doesn't mean that it's any less valuable or that it doesn't have you know that it's that it's an inappropriate or that it's bad or in any way it's just different. She presented herself really well and really kind of effectively for essentially what was quite a short press conference and I think people knew it's you know she's in that really weird position that we spoke about before where for the for, for the next few years she's still still studying and then for the next few years after that, she is going to be a very integral member of the Japanese imperial family. And then she's going to leave it. And it's a really hard position to be in. And she kind of had to balance that. And I think she managed that quite well. Yeah, I mean, I think the elephant in the room, anytime you hear anything from Aiko, is the fact that if she married, as things stand right now, if she married, she's out of the household and she's not going to be working. She can go and live somewhere else if she wants to. She'll just be normal Aiko, whatever her last name will be. You know, there was a question about Mako, as we've already mentioned, and about her marriage. And it, that sort of led into a conversation about Aiko and marriage. And she kind of just said that it was a, something that was very far away that she hadn't really thought about and um, didn't really give any sort of committed answer about what that would mean for her and for her future. And, you know, then they asked her about her duties and um, she sort of gave a very stock answer about how she values them and feels gratitude that people supported her but she never said anything about like oh well you know I, I know I'm only going to do this for a certain amount of time or I know my future is not in the royal family for the rest of my life or you know anything like that it's sort of like every time she answers a question there's sort of that lingering feeling in the back of your head of like but this 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 is a big question and we don't really know the answer to it and it sort of shad overshadows a lot of things that happen with Ico for me yeah and it you know I think we all have our own opinions on that and I think we've both stated our opinion on that before but I think and I'm sure Aiko's got her own opinion on that but also she's not in a position where she could come out and be like well actually I'd love to do this first in my life but I can't because of the stupid people who could you know she can't say that and I think you know like you mentioned the Japanese imperial family is so controlled by the people sort of around them and around the throne it's a really sort of hard sort of place and of the royal family she's it's the royal family that probably has the kind of the least control definitely I think that was interesting actually because she spoke about her um her parents 
And she sort of just, you know, a generic thing about emphasizing how supportive they've been. But she said thank you to her mother for giving birth to her, which might sound like a strange way of phrasing things. But it was believed to be a callback to a press conference in 2002 when her mother thanked her for being born. And I think that's interesting because on one level, that's just a nice statement of like, I love my mom sort of thing. But then if you could look at it, if you wanted to, um, on another level, because the Empress had a miscarriage before she had Aiko. Um, she also had difficulties conceiving, which were very, very public. Um, and she faced a huge amount of pressure and scrutiny over her sort of inability to produce a child. It was all laid on her. It was, and it led to her having to temporarily retire from public life because of the strain on her mental health. On some level, that's the polite diplomatic way of her being able to say sort of F you <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to the pressure. Yeah, I think the wording of it seemed quite specifically Mm-hmm. a throwback yeah yeah and kind of like a do you remember what you did to my mom <laughs> it was never going to be like Ingrid Alexandra's where she was talking about her favorite movies and the fact that she likes pasta or whatever it was you know it was never going to be that kind of relaxed and personable but for the Japanese royal family I think that she opened up in a way that she obviously felt comfortable with and that it was felt was appropriate and we did get to get a little glimpse of who she is yeah like it was very it was a cultivated appearance, but it also didn't seem like she was a robot or was making anything up. It felt very much true to her. Yes. So another thing that we're going to talk about is the memorial for Prince Philip, which is taking place on the 29th of March at Westminster Abbey. But what we want to talk about really is that we've had some confirmation that some foreign royals will be attending. So I will probably miss somebody out. So correct me and jump in if I do. But we've got from Norway, King Harold and Queen Sonia. From Spain, King Felipe and Queen Letizia. From Sweden, King Carl Gustaf and Queen Sylvia. From Belgium, King Philippe and Queen Mathilde. From the Netherlands, Queen Maxima, King Willem Alexander and Princess Beatrix. And from Romania, we have the custodian of the Romanian crown, Margareta, which is the best name ever, um, (laughs) and her husband, Prince Radu. Uh, I think that's all I know right now. I also had um, Queen Margareta of Denmark, um, so it's it's a full house. It is the most royals we've seen together since before COVID, and it's the most royals we've seen together since the sort of funeral of Grand Duke Jean of Luxembourg. Um, and I think you know the three kind of European monarchies we haven't mentioned of the ones that we ever talk about: uh, Monaco, Luxembourg, and Liechtenstein. Um, Monaco and Luxembourg tend not to announce their appearance at things like this because they don't announce things in advance anyway because they're so small so I think I think it's highly likely we'll get you know Albert and probably you know Grand Duke Connery and Grand Duchess Maria Theresa of Luxembourg as well it's lovely it's going to be lovely to see everybody together it's just a shame that it's not more of a sort of joyful occasion I like to see them all together when they can chat and smile and laugh and um, take happy photos together although I don't we don't really know like I'm interested in how the balance will kind of strike. Will it be all of these royals standing in black clothes um, or will there be some kind of light to it and it will be involving his charities and everyone's allowed to wear colours and feel happy and joyful. It's about celebration. Also, I mean, not necessarily for every other sort of consort, but for Philip, you if he, if he died in a normal time, no matter what he wanted, he would have had a funeral with a representative from the royal family. He would have got that because of how long he'd been 
the concert for he was you know the most known sort of concert in the world and I think it's really weird because it's a service of Thanksgiving memorial service which is both like memorial like oh I get it a bit like the Duke of Westminster's memorial service they all were navy and black and but then service of Thanksgiving makes you think like is the queen gonna put out an invitation that like Philip's favorite color was red so please all come in your favorite red outfit like what I don't know I don't get it (laughs) I mean, it'll be, it will definitely be interesting. We don't really know many details at this point um, about what's actually going to happen, um, what the kind of tone is going to be. But I do just hope that, you know, we're not bringing together all these people for the first thing since a global pandemic to talk about somebody dying. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if the Queen makes it, she's going to be in black and I feel like people will just take their lead from her. Um, but I also, I do think it's, I mean, it's not funny, but it's kind of funny that we've got this massive royal attendance from European royals confirmed. And like the biggest question mark is hanging over whether or not the Queen's going to make it. It's it's exactly, it's the same situation as the Commonwealth Day service where it's Westminster Abbey, which will have to travel from Windsor. And I think she pulled out of the Commonwealth service so it wouldn't like knock her out for the for Phillips thing. I think they're they essentially being like, you are going to stay here and stay healthy and we are going to get you to that memorial service and then you never have to leave Windsor again. And it would be strange not to see her there. And I think, like, I was honestly surprised to see so many monarchs going. I thought it would be maybe like Queen Sophia and Princess Beatrix, who used to be queens or queen consorts. I thought it would be that level, um, partly because they're closer to Philip in age and so have met him more, more often, but also because we've seen a lot of cancellations recently of like tours and things because of Ukraine. And so I thought more monarchs would want to stay in their own countries. But I think that will just make it even more apparent if she doesn't go, because it's going to be like the monarchs of so many different countries who very rarely get together on that scale, but not our own monarch. I didn't, I've not, we're not going to talk in, I don't think, in any great depth about Prince Harry. But, you know, there have been people who have sort of been like, oh, well, Prince Harry can't go. This is the most disgusting thing in the entire world. But this is a memorial. This is not a funeral. So I feel like he went to the funeral. He did the important bitch. It's not really that big of a deal if he doesn't go to the memorial. And so for the queen, I think it will be very strange if she doesn't go. But at the same time, she did go to his funeral. It's one of those weird things because I, you know, not to bring up Harry lots, but I never expected him to go because it's such a long journey to essentially do like a mini version of a funeral he's already been to. Like it's not going to be an enjoyable event. I think for the British royal family because it's going to be quite emotional and because of probably how he died they missed those last few years with him and the funeral was all a bit weird and socially distant so I I never expected Harry to fly from America for like an hour of pain to go home again Um, whereas you know I think the Queen is doing everything in her power to get there but I don't know if she'll make it. I think the person I'm it's weird because the person I'm most shocked who ha- hasn't confirmed their attendance is Queen Sophia of Spain. Sophia's Greek and Philip's Greek. So <laughs> they're literally quite closely related. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there's also like Prince Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I just have Andrew with a question mark. Like, it's like, it's one of these weird things because it's his dad and it's one of those engagements that's right on that line of being royal and official and being personal. So like, I... I don't want to see him there. I feel like, A, he shouldn't be there anyway because it's in public. B, it would completely overshadow the entire event. And C, they've said it that there will be like charity representatives there for Philip's patronages. And I feel like you can't have invite people from Philip's work and also Andrew. But I feel like he the lawsuit has ended. He's legally innocent of everything. 
and also it's his dad and I he went I mean I always expect him to go to the funeral but he's it, this is probably the only thing I can ever see him sort of publicly going to again until the Queen's funeral um I also wouldn't be shocked if he turned up yeah and was like sat somewhere else yeah like in the back somewhere like behind like with the custodian of the Romanian crown yeah like a fake mustache on um big glasses (laughs) (laughs) uh we shouldn't laugh um yeah I mean I definitely expect to see all the Brits I mean like the cousins the I wouldn't, I you know, I wouldn't even be surprised to see people like sort of Savannah and Isla and maybe George. Probably no one younger than George. You know, that is a normal age to go for things, and it's not the funeral. And I always felt like it was quite sad they couldn't go to the funeral because of numbers and the British royal family is so big, and they like ended up picking like from the cousins like one person and not a couple. But so it it makes sense. But I can also see, you know, particularly in the case of people like Savannah and Isla peter taking them yeah and i think also like maybe this is a cultural thing but funerals are quite intense for kids you know maybe it's it depends on the individual families but like they couldn't go to the funeral anyway but even if they had been able to go i think it it makes more sense for them to go to something that is hopefully going to be a little bit more joyful and like celebrating his legacy rather than just he's died yeah and seeing great granny crying over on the other side of the room by herself (laughs) yeah i think that this will hopefully be less tears and more like here's a fun story from his life um which is more child appropriate so would I mean I'm not expecting it but it would be nice if some of those older kids were able to go I wonder if you know because it's going to be so family linked if Peter will bring his new partner who he's had for now quite a considerable time for over a year so I'm always like that's like completely a gossip side of things like not about a serious memorial but I'm really like want to just like people watch it's like a soap opera it is, it is. I'm fascinated by, like, who's sitting there here? <laughs> um, obviously, the uh, situation between Ukraine and Russia is still going on. The people in the Ukraine are still um, undergoing warfare and the royals are getting involved in various ways. Um, but rather than just continue to list all the different things royals have done, there was one royal family who kind of went above and beyond and actually did something quite meaningful this week, which was the Belgian royal family. Um, who announced that they would host three Ukrainian families in two of their houses. So one of their houses in Brussels and one in uh, Wallonia. But it is adding to my list of reasons why I've decided that Philippe and Matilda, some of the nicest people in the world, or at least the very best at PR. Oh, well, absolutely. Basically, um, the homes are owned by the Royal Trust. So kind of like the Crown Estate owns um, or the government in the UK owns Buckingham Palace. So it's not 100% the decision of the king and the queen. It's not like they can just say, here you go, here's the house. But apparently what happened was the king made the initial proposal to the royal trust that these properties be opened up to Ukrainian refugees. And he has a representative who is on the board at all times who sort of makes his opinion known. And so he was, you know, although he wasn't the only person who made the decision, he was very, very instrumental in doing so. You know, it's not the first time it's happened. Uh, in 2021, they housed people who'd lost their home to flooding. But even all the way back in 2009, uh, King Albert and Queen Paula at the time um, donated a home for the homeless uh, community in Belgium. So this is something that has been going on for a long time that I just didn't know about. Back when the COVID pandemic started, 
I think both of us were creating lists of like actual things the royals could do rather than just calling people and chatting for five minutes for no reason. <laughs> things that I suggested was that the royals make their properties available to like first responders or even the homeless communities who were very at risk of COVID at the beginning. And so although this is a different situation, it's Ukraine, not COVID, I am actually really surprised and pleased to, to see that happening. No, I definitely didn't expect it. And it's one of these things where when there's some kind of like big disaster and lots of people are displaced there's always that little contingent of people who go like why don't rich people let them live in their houses because they've got loads of rooms um and obviously a lot of the time like well obviously not rich people but royals don't actually like own like we spoke about last week if you want to listen to last week they don't own all their houses like the queen can't just open the doors of Buckingham Palace and let people go in but the way in Belgium like you said it works the royal trust control the houses and Philip's got a sort of a place there to speak and it was clearly a joint decision and it's not brand new but they've actually done something and for those three Ukrainian families they are going to get help and obviously they're going to get help in somewhere where they're going to have protection and sort of help with other things if they need it so help with finding sort of new accommodation in the future and getting any children back into education because they're going to literally be sort of within the royal confines. What a signal it sends I suppose like obviously the king doesn't have any role in um, policy decisions for Belgium but if the head of state is welcoming you with open arms it kind of makes anybody who opposes you kind of seem a bit silly or at odds with the public mood or not speaking to the values of that country. The Belgian royal family shocked everyone a bit I think I'm gonna be honest I really didn't pay attention to them like when I thought about the European royals I'd forget them and then the Covid sort of pandemic happened and suddenly Belgium were like right we actually know how to deal with this and let us go and they did so much and they got the kids involved. When we say now that you know the kids one of the things that they they announced that the kids were having calls with um, elderly people who were in care homes and things and like they went and dropped off parcels at at elderly um, care homes and things like that and now on the other side of things we might sort of be thinking well every royal family did that that's not that significant they were doing this in like March April 2020 when other royal families were just like I don't even know if I'm allowed to leave the house (laughs) and yeah I was exactly the same as you I really did not care about I didn't dislike them but I really did not care about them at all I didn't find them interesting and then yeah this response to Covid was just so magnificent it put everyone else to shame and not it wasn't even just that like then we had the Delphine situation so um just to give a very short history of that uh Princess Delphine uh is the daughter of former King Albert who is also Philippe's father um but she was born to his mistress so she was sort of born out of wedlock and um the king rejected her King Albert rejected her uh, for many years she went to court to kind of establish that he was her father and at the end of that she won she was recognized as his daughter um she got a princess title you know albert had spent years just ignoring the problem and as soon as the verdict came out philippe was like right she's being invited to the palace we're going to sit down and have a chat with her we're going to release a photograph with statements about how how wonderful this new phase of our life is going to be philippe just went right okay well this is what we're going to do and then did it and so those two things covid and um the delphine situation and now of course this response to Ukraine all of those things taken together he really impresses me 
um, with how decisive he is and how, how well he handles these big gestures and this PR angle. It's happened like it's 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 becoming a pattern, but like it's a good pattern. Yeah, they're clearly it's not a one off that like ah oh, done our bit now we can sit back for ten years. They're like no, we have to keep doing this because this is what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very impressed. So that's a gold star from me, if you ever wanted one. <laughs> My other question now is like, that story, I think, has gained a lot of traction compared to most stories about the Belgian. I imagine most people in Britain don't even know that there is a Belgian royal family. Do we think this will put pressure on other families to fo- follow suit? Will we see um, any other families? I, knew, I mean, I've noticed in the press today, uh, and I think yesterday as well, stories about the British royals are now thinking about what they can do with their properties. I think the pressure will only come if the if it grows to the extent within a certain country. So if it, like, in British newspapers or in the Swedish papers or in the Spanish papers, it became not just look at what Belgium have done, but look at what Belgium have done and our royal family haven't. Also, it's quite... I, I mean, I've never planned a refugee rehabilitation programme, but I feel like it does take a while to get people to different places. So in a weird way, the royals have got a little bit of time to sort of get an actual planning gear and be like, look, this is what we're doing and we're starting right now. You know, I remember last year when the press said that Prince William was thinking about opening up royal palaces to the homeless. And since and there was a lot of criticism around that and a lot of praise as well from different sides of the conversation. And all of them seem to forget that he never said that. Um, it was all a press. <laughs> it was all just a story in the press, and it might be true, but it might not be. And so this story, I feel like, you know, now that the Belgians have actually done it, they might feel more pressure to actually do it. But at the same time, it could just be another story that isn't going to go anywhere, and that the royals have actually never personally considered anyway. Yeah, and I also think the properties in Belgium that are being used to sort of house the Ukrainian refugees and were used to house like the people in the floods. Uh, but like specifically designated as properties for people who needed them they were they're Belgian royal properties but like it's not like it's where King Philippe spends his Sunday evenings like it's not their homes whereas like when we went through the British royal residences last week most of them are someone's home or have a very specific purpose like they're a storage facility essentially so they're in a weird position where they've got a lot of houses and I keep bringing this up but they do but they don't have a lot of empty houses. They've got things like Balmoral's empty for a lot of the year, but it's still where the Queen lives. If you read the stories in the British press, it's about like the holiday homes that Prince Charles has in Cornwall, I think, uh, rather than Clarence House. Buckingham Palace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So thank you for joining us, as always, for this episode this week. Uh, We really appreciate all of you, especially if you're a repeat listener. But it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.